Welcome, everyone, to DEI After Five, the show that focuses on topics across diversity, equity, and inclusion with some of the brightest minds in the industry. Here's your hostess, inclusive culture curator and coach, Sasha Thompson. Hey, everyone, and welcome to this episode of DEI After Five. So if you, again, have followed me for any amount of time, you know that I have really been focusing on how do we make sure that this work, DEI work, is sustainable, right? And so by doing so, it can't just be conversations happening at the top of the organization or a lot of the grassroots things that happen um, when people feel as if they have to kind of take a stand. Um, the power in this work really is in focusing on those that are in the middle. And so my conversation today is with one of my favorite DEI practitioners, Amy Weininger. And um, I'm just really looking forward to this conversation around, you know, how do we do this, right? How do we engage the middle managers in this conversation? So Amy, welcome to the show. Hello, it is so good to be here. Thank you. So for folks that may not know who you are, what you do, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Of course. My name is Amy Wanninger. I am the Inclusion Catalyst. I am the founder and CEO of Lead at Any Level. We are a boutique consultancy and training organization. We offer assessments, advisory, and training services to companies that promote from within who want to keep their employees and keep them engaged. Love it. So you know, Amy, you and I have talked about this several times, right, about how do we get this work going? Um, you know, to some degree, we're trying to push ourselves out of jobs, right, so that we don't, we don't have to be the ones doing this, right? It's a part of the company DNA. So talk to me a little bit about how you got to that place where you realized, okay, this really needs to be a focus of this work. Absolutely. So, I see D and I coming a lot from the top down in organizations. The reason is executives live in the future. Executives are always looking to what's next. What are the challenges we're going to face? You know, to to quote, uh, I think it was Donald Rumsfeld. What are the unknown unknowns? Right, unknown knowns. Mm -hmm. So, what are the things that we're looking forward and seeing as obstacles in the future? And what they've uncovered is there's a huge demographic shift. First of all. Um, in the U.S., there's, you know, we're becoming a, a I hate this phrase, but majority minority um, country, right, where the, the demographics of the country are shifting. Mm -hmm. We're seeing increased globalization. And that's good from a, a market share standpoint, right, that you can reach customers globally, but you're also dealing with more international competition. And they're also seeing, look, we've got a workforce that's aging into retirement. So when you combine all of those things, we're seeing, number one, a talent problem, right? Where we're not going to have the talent that we need to sustain our organizations long term. And number two, we're seeing different market demographics, different market needs. And mm -hmm. then we're also seeing increased global competition. So part of the reason why executives have taken on this work for so long or have pushed this work, you know, attempted to push this work down is they're trying to solve a problem that they see looming on the horizon. The disconnect, I think, comes in where executives live in the future, but the frontline folks live 
in the right now. Mm-hmm. And I think executives a lot of times will say, you know what, we do, we did this work, or we're doing the work, right? We've we've set up the trainings, we've stood up a DNI office, we've done, you know, the ten things we know, and now we've got people handling that, and it's being taken care of. But the folks on the front lines are not seeing change, and the disconnect is that middle management piece. And I'm not saying that middle managers are bad or whatever. It's it's not about that. It's about they don't know what their role is. Mm-hmm. They don't know what they're being held accountable to. And they don't know what they're being asked to do differently. You know what? I, I'm over here nodding. Mm-hmm, yep. Yep. Because I'm seeing the same thing too. Right. And it's so interesting to me that there are so many, and I'm going to say people managers um, that got management roles because they were good with the task, not necessarily their people skills. And that's something that's not taught. That's not something that is, you know, that they're coached or mentored toward. It's okay. Yep. You're good with these widgets. And so we're going to give you a team to do more of those widgets, but we're not going to tell you or show you how to manage that team. And so it's almost setting up these organizations for failure because now we're looking at this pandemic, right? We're still kind of in the ends of, hopefully the ends of the pandemic and people are leaving, right? They're not feeling connected to the organization. They're feeling like cogs in a wheel. Middle managers, to your point, are just kind of in between and not being told how to do, what to do, where to do any of those things. Um, And so that's where... I'm also seeing a lot of the investment needs to happen. So, Amy, you know, as you're doing your work and as you're talking to executives about this, what are some of the gaps? And we talked about it a little bit just now, but what are some of the other gaps that you're seeing with that middle group? I think one of the most important ones is we have to give people a compelling reason to change. If mm-hmm. people don't change unless the pain of staying where they are becomes more painful than the pain of change. And we see this all the time, right? With every other change initiative in our organizations. But for some reason, we're managing diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives outside of this change management process that we know works in other aspects and things like, Mm -hmm. you know, organizational changes, things like branding changes, things like uh, technology changes. So my advice is, to manage this like a change process, number one. But then on the other side of that, give people the tools they need as individuals to process change effectively. Mm -hmm. A lot of times we're given changes, right? The change is nicely packaged for us and we unwrap it and we figure out, oh, this is what I need to do with this change. And then the next one comes down the assembly line and we unwrap it and we figure out, this is what we need to do with this one. But if you give people the tools they need that no matter what comes down that conveyor belt of change, they know how to deal with it. Now you've got a workforce that's resilient and adaptable. And this is no different. You're asking people to do things differently. The other piece is when when we want a culture change, when we want to change anything else about our organization, we do it through our systems and structures, through our processes and tools, through the way we get the work done. And so we need to be investing in the changes to the systems that we use right? For example, if you want your managers to respect people's pronouns, then you need to start by capturing people's pronouns when they join your organization. Mm -hmm. 
If you want managers to eliminate or reduce bias in the hiring process, you need to give them the tools to have redacted resumes, to have panels of interviewers, to go through the trainings that will keep them from, you know, help them recognize where their biases are showing up and how they can undo them. So it's changing the way we do business as much as it is training people on what they need to know. And then finally, I would say for middle managers, especially what's in it for them, what is it that they can gain right. by investing in this work, by you know, signing up to be a part of an ERG, by encouraging their employees to belong to ERGs or you know, showing up in different ways and in different spaces. There's a lot of fear around this for people. You know, managers, mm -hmm. most of most managers learn to manage by watching their past managers. Which just may like or may not be great. <laughs> which may or may, may not be great. Because let's think about this. Yeah. Everything in business has changed. Yeah. Everything. We no longer advertise in the yellow pages so people will come to our office to buy our products and services. It's not how it works. We've changed everything about business except the way we lead. Mm. And so if we want people to have this paradigm shift in their leadership styles, we want them to go not just from you know command and control to servant leadership, right. but from command and control to servant leadership to inclusive leadership. Yes, yes, yes. We have to give them the tools to do that. Otherwise, we're, you know, we're just kind of throwing them out there and saying, hey, good luck. And the best companies, the best companies train people after they're promoted. We got to start earlier. Amen. Hallelujah. Yes. You know, you must have been like in my head today because first thing this morning, um, I started thinking about what does inclusive leadership look like? What are the skills that it takes to become an inclusive leader? Because the work that I've been doing has really been around like psychological safety and high level talking about emotional intelligence. Um, because these are the things that people are saying they're not getting from their managers, right? So when we're thinking about what does 21st century inclusive leadership look like, right? What are the skills that it takes to be an inclusive leader? It's all of the quote unquote soft skills that were poo-pooed <laughs> the generations before, yeah. right? Like that's what's keeping people in their jobs, in their organizations, making them feel valued, seen, heard, connected, right? Um, and But those are the things that are just almost counterintuitive to mm -hmm. many leaders because of exactly what you just said. That's not how their managers have been before, right? Right. And it just reminded me of a situation where, <clears throat> sorry, where um, I had a leader who a great number of women on this team started to leave, right? And hindsight realized, okay, I've just been doing what I had seen before. And his manager before was misogynistic, sex, you know, like all of the bad things you can think of. And he was just repeating that because that's all he knew. And so once he became very aware and cognizant of that, things changed. Right. So again, it's how do we provide them with the tools and resources to upskill in these areas? So sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, that's OK. When I think about inclusive leadership skills and and I call these essential skills. Yeah, uh, because without the people skills, without those, quote unquote, soft skills, we don't get any work done. The only yeah. way you get work done in an organization is 
through other people, through your informal networks, through influence, and, you know, through accountability. And those things all come from what I call the essential skills. And, you know, from, from my perspective and some of the things I teach, Sasha, are about, again, being responsive to change, understanding mm-hmm. how leadership needs to evolve, giving and receiving feedback effectively, not just giving, but <laughs> receiving feedback effectively. Yes. Um, you know, playing to people's strengths and really seeing what's great about each person on your team and giving them as much of that as you can mm-hmm. so that they can be great. And then creating a well-rounded team. Um, building relationships across difference is important because, you know, increasingly managers are being tasked with managing people, with leading people who do not have their shared life experiences. So how do they start to build those relationships in ways that maybe they've never had to before and seeing talent that's in front of them that they might otherwise overlook? And so and then finally, how do we create cultures of learning, cultures that seek feedback? cultures that share information instead of hoard it, cultures of people who invest in their own development, or if the company invests in them, they pay it forward by teaching five other people what they've learned. All of these things go, you know, work together to create the kinds of leaders that will take us into the future to solve the problems that even our executives don't know are coming yet. You know, I love, I love that. No, I was going to say, I absolutely love that. You know, like that last piece that you talked about is learner safety, right? Like that's the second stage of psychological safety is being able to learn and then go into stage three, which is contributor. Now I can contribute, right? Now I can share. And you create this environment where learning, even through mistakes, is okay, right? You're not going to be punished for those mistakes, Right. How do you learn from them? Opportunities to learn and grow. And it's not a punitive thing. The other thing that you said that I, again, was in church for a minute uh, about the receiving feedback. Right. People become so defensive in that feedback. And, you know, the coach in me is asking, where is that coming from? Mm-hmm. Like, what what is that feeling that you're feeling right now? Mm-hmm. And let's unpack that. Because it's not necessarily the feedback that you're reacting to. It's, I'm supposed to be perfect. I'm supposed to, you know, all of these things. And we're like, we forget that we're human at the root of it. And then the other thing that you said around um, managing across difference, right? Because again, people are so uncomfortable with, with what they don't know. And so there's this avoidance. Um, but again, it's like, understanding the root of that. Why? What makes you uncomfortable? What makes you want to navigate toward what you know, right? That's natural, our natural instinct, but how do you push yourself beyond that, right? Because who could you be hindering because of your biases? Exactly. I tell a story. (laughs) I tell a story, if I can, just real quick to tell a story to illustrate that. I used to work with a woman and she was a rock star. You, you've had these people on your teams, right? That are just like, she just, everything she got, she just knocked it right out of the park. And what I realized after a while, I noticed sometimes I was really uncomfortable when I was talking to her and I couldn't figure it out, but she was really important to me, right? Because she was so good at her job. She was so on the ball. She taught me so much. I was really invested in making the relationship work. 
And so I sat down and thought about it for a while. I really unpacked it, Sasha. Mm -hmm. And I thought, what is it? When is it that I'm uncomfortable talking to her? It's not when we're both at my desk. It's not when we're in a meeting. It's only when we're standing up, like in the Mm -hmm. hallway. And what I realized was she's about six inches shorter than I am. And I'm not used to being taller than other adults. And so I realized this wasn't like an interpersonal problem between the two of us. Mm -hmm. This was a problem between my ears Mm -hmm. that I had to sort out. But then it got me to thinking, how many times have I not felt so invested in the relationship that I sat down and figured out what's going on up here that's keeping me from being comfortable with this person? What are the blockers in my own mind? that are preventing me from having a good relationship with them, that I'm learning as much as I can from them, that I'm supporting them to the extent that I need to. And that was a real eye opener for me because you think about all the ways people might be different and all of the ways we might back up when we're uncomfortable. We don't know what to say. We don't know what to do. You know, we've never been in that situation before. And it might be something really small and silly because let's think about it. A six inch high difference is pretty silly, right? To make somebody uncomfortable But it was a different experience for me. And Mm. until I really thought about what it was, I couldn't get in my head that, oh, this is silly. There's nothing here. I need to, I need to deal with this in my own way yeah, and make sure that I'm not keeping people at arm's length just because something is making me uncomfortable. You know what? And I'm so glad you shared that story, Amy, because it takes that internal work. And I I say that all the time to people and, and it's why I partner kind of a lot of the work that I do, the consulting work that I do with one-on-one coaching, because people think everything, everyone else is the problem. (laughs) And I'm just like, "Mm, let's look at the common denominator here. (laughs) But it it takes that internal work. Um, I just did a, a session with a group last week and the first part of our work together was people doing their own internal work. And I asked them to draw out their gremlins and like physically draw a gremlin. And what do these things represent? And, and, you know, and what are they trying to do and how are they trying to protect you? Like it was a whole process. And the leader afterward was just like, that was probably the most uncomfortable I've ever been. And I needed that. We need more of that work because I was realizing that how I was showing up were these voices in my head telling me to do something or not do something because I think I'm protecting myself. Yes. Right. And so again, it's how do we get leaders to go beyond, I want to be a great leader to, I can be a great leader, but I have to do the internal work on myself in order to open up that door. Right. So that's why I appreciate that story, because sometimes it is a little thing. Pardon the phrase, little, but, you know, <laughs> six inches. <clears throat> yeah. It had nothing to do with her capabilities or like you said, the work that was happening. It was just literally something that you had to get over. But yeah. you had to do the work to realize that. So, yeah. I and it had that. to be important enough to do it. And I think too often managers are able to say, well, there's something about that person that makes me uncomfortable. There's something about them I don't like. And then instead of investing in figuring that out, they just go invest in a different team member. Yeah. 
And if you only, if you, you know, and I always say, especially when I'm talking about feedback, if you have five houseplants and you only water and feed one of them, only one of them is going to grow and thrive. Absolutely. And too many managers do that with their teams. They only, they only nurture, you know, a small subset of their teams. I love that analogy. One, because I always kill houseplants, but, um, <laughs> but you know, it's so true. It's, it's so true. And, you know, you have to take the time to nurture and I just bought a bunch of plants. So that's why this is really a great analogy for me, but are they getting the right sunlight? Are you not just watering everyone the same, right? But knowing what each one needs, that's the equity of this work, right? So I have some plants that are in my office. I have some that are in our family room that all require slightly different things for care um, in order for them to thrive. And so it's the exact same thing. You know, you can, you have to nurture them based on what they need in order to thrive. So, oh, Amy, I love that. I love, love, love it. So, you know what? All right. I want to do a little bit of a pivot because to this point, um, organizations have not been doing a lot of investment in that middle manager um, area, right? I think, especially now that we are, seeing kind of what this post-pandemic corporate space looks like, some organizations are starting to get it and starting to understand, okay, in order to deal with our retention and attrition issues or, you know, trying to recruit, we're trying to fill a lot of roles, we need to hold on to who we have. Um, What are some things that organizations can do now to start to pivot into this focus on middle managers? So I think one of the first things is, is to recognize that, you know, I hear a lot of managers say, well, or a lot of hiring managers say, nobody wants to work anymore. And I'm going to tell oh, you that, that, that is that is such a false narrative. <laughs> oh, unemployment, unemployment, full employment is when unemployment hits 5.0 to 5.2%. Mm. This week, we hit 54 year low unemployment of 3.4%. Now, there are a lot of people gone from this workforce. They've retired. They have not come into the country because of changes to immigration during COVID. They have been, um, their health is compromised because of COVID. Um, a lot of people died in the last three years. Yeah. Let's be clear, right? Yeah. So there, it's not that people don't want to work. We've just got fewer people to do the work than yeah. we had five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. That's a fact. And so I think the first thing we need to do as organizations is get rid of this lazy worker narrative. And I know you've talked on MSNBC and all over the place about quiet quitting. Um, Two things about that. Number one, you know, we, we really don't have enough people to do all this work. So that's the first thing. And if we just say, well, workers are lazy, that doesn't empower us to fix the problems that really do exist. Right. Right. Because if we don't own any of the problem, we can't own any of the solution. So that's number one. So we need to train. Mm -hmm. We need to educate people beyond that simple narrative. The second thing around this notion of quiet quitting is we've heard managers for years say, I don't have to thank my employees. That's what they get paid for. And now those same employers are saying, I don't understand why people aren't doing more than they're paid for. Mm -hmm. Well, we can't keep victimizing workers and expecting them to come back and love us. So that's something that needs to be needs to be very widely communicated up and down management teams. 
I think for middle managers, what they need to know is they need to understand very clearly why is equity work, why is diversity and inclusion work, and those are three different things, right? Yeah. Why is the work tied to the company's mission? Why does it matter? And what happens if we don't do it? Yeah. And these are not, as much as I want it to be about, well, we just want to treat everybody well. And right, this is about the existential reality of the organization. Will mm -hmm. we have customers in 10 years? Will we have workers in 10 years? Will yeah. we be solvent in 10 years? Those are the stakes. Yeah. And so I think getting middle managers on board requires them to understand that they've got to look beyond their own today, beyond the work that's coming in that they're pushing out. And they need to be able to see a bigger picture that makes this make sense for them. I think the other thing that we need to do is we need to give them the very specific skills and support they need so they can engage with their roles and responsibilities differently. Because for too long, we've just let people languish. We have let people figure it out as they go, right? I learned to parent because I had parents. And now I raise my kids mostly the way my parents raised me, but with a couple of tweaks about some things that I have some issues with, right? And that's how most managers lead is basically how they were managed before with a couple of tweaks based on some things they had issues with. Yeah. And if they never had a good manager, they're not going to be a good manager. So we've got to be intentional about giving them those tools and the skills that they need. And then finally, we have to keep reinforcing and we have to give them the right support. So they know where to go. They know how to ask the right questions. They know how to engage and that they can be vulnerable and not have to know everything without it coming back as they're incompetent. Because so much of this work is new for people. And so much, so many of the jobs that exist today didn't exist 10 or 15 years ago. Right. 15 years ago, you didn't have a social media manager. 15 years ago, you didn't have an artificial intelligence expert. You didn't yeah. have a machine learning programmer. You didn't have a data scientist on your team. Well, now you do. Yeah. And just like that has changed. So is this work evolving? Amy, I tell you, every time I talk to you, it's just like, you just knock it out the park because oh, thank you. it's just, it's so like on point and, you know, what you said around, you know, lazy workers and it's, it's shifting the narrative, right? It's not to put the, the blame, right? One, absolutely. They're not enough, but two, what type of environment are you creating where people feel as if they feel valued, right? If you're calling them lazy or if you're saying, you know, you you're getting paid, so I don't have to thank you, right? That creates an environment that is not one that people want to be a part of. They want to feel valued, seen, heard, connected. And so how do you shift that narrative? And that's not for the employees to do, right? That's for leadership to do. And, and what type of organization do we want to be? Um, so I, I, you know, I absolutely appreciate that. And then again, doubling down on the skills, like what skills, how are we investing in our people leaders to make sure that they have what they need to answer some of the questions that they may have as well? And what continued support do we have to ensure their success? Right? Because it's one thing to say, oh, yeah, there's this resource guide. Right. Go read that. No. How are you truly investing in their success? Because their success is your company's success. You know, Absolutely. so it's all of these things that, you know, 
I think organizations really need to pivot. And, you know, one of the things that I, I did say on Tiffany's show was we are now in a post-pandemic workplace. We're not going back to where we were before as much as organizations and as much as companies want to get back to that. That's not happening because we've opened Pandora's box. People now know what it feels like to work from home and have that flexibility. People now are prioritizing wellness and mental health and their families. You know, to your point, a lot of people lost a lot of friends and family over the last few years. And so do I want to work myself to death or do I want to work in a way that fulfills me fills my cup, right? And allows me to fill the cups of my family and friends, right? So it's this total mental shift that's taking place that I don't think is going to go away. I don't either. I think that, um, you know, we saw that productivity wouldn't be lost with work from home. We saw that, um, you know, we could continue to do our jobs. We had an advanced uh, adoption of technologies that enabled all of this, right? We were, we happened to be in a time and space when we could support, a, not for everyone, but we could support a lot of the work mm-hmm. to keep going despite being remote, being, you know, scattered. And, you know, the other thing I'll say about the unemployment number, Sasha, you know, to your point about investment, if you're not investing in and appreciating your employees at 3.4% unemployment, if you're not doing it, another company will. Somebody will, yeah. And it's going to take you longer and longer and longer to replace those empty seats, fill those empty seats, yeah. as long as unemployment's as low as it is. And it, is, it doesn't show any sign of slowing down. Yeah. I, I mean, I just talked to a friend this weekend and she said, the only reason I'm staying in my job is because it's 100% remote. And as I'm looking for other jobs, that is a top priority for me. Right. And so it's what's keeping people and it's not necessarily the money. People are starting to care less about the money than work life balance, flexibility, um, mental health. Right. Are you all driving me crazy (laughs) this every day, you know, where I'm challenging my own mental health or it's not worth the paycheck. Right. A lot of people are, are, are balancing that. And so I think it's so important. Um, for organizations to do this shift. I'm going to do another pivot, Amy. Um, What do you do to take care of yourself in this? How do you (laughs) fill your cup? I've been talking about people filling their cups. How do you fill your cup? You know, I wish I'd had time to grab it right before I sat down for this interview, but I have this wonderful book uh, by a woman named Sasha Thompson about (laughs) self-care for DEI professionals. It's awesome. I I actually got a signed copy. I was I was one of the fortunate ones that got a signed copy of it. Um, so you know, there's a lot of great resources in there. One of the things that I do is, uh, first of all, you know, usually my my therapy relationships end when my therapist says, "And what do you do for fun?" And I just sort of sit there and stare at them like, "What's fun?" I work, I, you know, like all the time I work. But um, you know, I do go to therapy, do a lot of uh, journaling, and. Um, you know, I really, I try to be present with my kids. I mm-hmm. took a couple of vacations last year. Um, even though I probably couldn't afford to take a couple of vacations last year, I did anyway, because I really needed the break after being home for so long. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I try very hard to be very present wherever I am. And the other thing that really helps me is being connected to people like you who are in this work, who understand 
uh, you know, how challenging and how rewarding it can be who understand that if we just keep going, right, you may not save everyone, but you'll save someone. And, um, you know, it's just this, one of the things that fills me up, I'm a strengths coach, Gallup certified strengths coach, not because I wanted to coach, but because I wanted to teach their program. And, um, you know, learner is for me always in my top five, I've taken it several times. And what learner is, is I just love to learn. And part of the reason I do what I do is because I have created a job for myself where every day I get to learn something. And every day I learn, I feel like I've been filled just a little bit more. And that makes it so much easier to keep keep doing what I'm doing. If I ever feel like I'm stagnating, I got to go do something else. So this is, you know, this work fills me up. Um, it depletes me. And then the next day it fills me right back up again. <laughs> uh, you know, hundred percent. I absolutely, absolutely agree. Um, you know, I think, you know, in full transparency, like Amy and I followed each other for a long time, I think on social media before we actually met. And then when we met, it was just like, okay, like there was no, you know, there was nothing there was, we'd, we'd always known each other. And so, you know, I appreciate, you know, having you as part of that circle of folks that where we can say, Hey, this is what I'm thinking of, or are you dealing with this? And there's no, there's no competition. It's, you know, trying to share and uplift and, you know, you're being on this show, I was on your show. And so I, that is definitely one of the ways that you can fill your cup. So I appreciate you. Um, and all that you do. Thank you. Likewise. So, Amy, if people wanted to follow you, connect with you, how could they do that? So the best way to connect with me is at my website, leadatanylevel.com. And you can also find me on LinkedIn. If you want to get sick of me, follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, I post relentlessly on LinkedIn because I got a lot of stuff I got to say. Uh, <laughs> but um, LinkedIn is a really good place to follow me and find me, my website. And, you know, I just I love connecting with people. I love talking about this work um, and I love helping companies figure out how they can keep their employees and keep them engaged. Wonderful. And I also want to say that you are part of the living corporate ecosystem as well yes. with your show. So yes. Plug that in if folks want to hear um, conversations again around diversity and inclusion. I think that's a great resource. And, you know, what Zach has done with that platform is just unbelievable. So and more and to come. He's got, more to, he's got sure. a big vision, a big vision. And I always tell yeah. him whatever you're doing that you want me to be a part of, you just send me a list of what you need. So. Absolutely. Love, love, love Zach. So Amy, thank you so much for being a part of this and just sharing, because I think this is really going to be 2023 and beyond. This is going to be a big focus for diversity, equity, and inclusion work. So thank you so much for joining us today. And everyone, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of DEI After Five. You know, as always, you can find us here on YouTube or on your favorite podcast platform every Tuesday at 5.15 p.m. Until next time, have a good one.